Welcome to the latest edition of the Dundeal Football Podcast. This week, I had the privilege of speaking with Omar Chowdhury from the 21st Club. I love chatting to Omar about all things football. We did a fantastic four-part series um, on YouTube, um, which has uh, been put onto this podcast as well. And again, we just provide some more detail on um, loads of interesting matters that are going on in the football space at the moment, from the transfer market to recruitment to club ownership. Um, and to broadcasting matters. Um, it's fascinating to always hear from Omar and I'm sure you guys would enjoy it too. Thanks. Yeah, obviously we, we were chatting, we thought it'd be useful to kind of pick up the conversation that we had back in the last year. The, the videos that we that we put out received um, some, good, some good feedback, we thought. Uh, a lot of people enjoyed them. Uh, and obviously some of the themes that we discussed suddenly change in relevance during, um, during this coronavirus period. Uh, so we thought we'd um, we have a little discussion around them. Uh, the first one, probably most relevant one, uh, is ownership. Uh, we discussed, I think the strap line is, why would anyone own a football club? Um, and you might even ask that even more now. Um, it's obviously relevant with, um, with the Newcastle uh, takeover on the cards. Um, but they're, they're going through, obviously, this Premier League, I think what used to be known as a fit and proper person's test, but that's, that's changed, isn't it? So what's, yep. what, what happens now? What's, what's going on in the transaction? Yeah, so funnily enough, a lot of Newcastle fans keep on trying to ask me that on Twitter, <laughs> thinking I know something that, that they won't. But, you know, generally in my experience and what we've talked about previously is um, the, the test is basically the owners and directors test, the ODT. And at face value, it is um, simply a declaration um, for anyone that's going to control or influence um, um, a Premier League club that they haven't um, uh, done certain bad things. So, for example, being in insolvency events, being declared bankrupt, um, don't have um, large ownership stakes in other clubs, haven't been disqualified as a director, haven't been disqualified in a particular profession. Um, all of those type of elements generally which are tend to be seen as quite objective um, criteria. Now, the thing that um, has been reported and has cropped up in a bit of detail around um, the Newcastle takeover is because obviously it is at least backed by um, a sovereign state um, and the Saudi sovereign state at that. Um, and, and there's a few added complications in all. There's been some really interesting reporting over the last week or so um, in the mainstream press around human rights issues um, relation, in relation to the Saudi government and also um, the pretty high-profile spat, spat between B in sport and the Saudi-backed broadcaster B out Q, um, which is alleged to have um, pirated a lot of the B in sport um, footage, particularly in relation to EPL coverage in the region. So um, B in Sport, I believe it was reported, actually um, wrote to the, the Premier League relatively recently as one of its bigger non-domestic broadcasters that is effectively paying over, I think, £400 million to the Premier League over a period of time. So there's actually more complications than usual um, in this, in at least the, the passing of the, the ODT. Um, but in addition, it's not just simply that declaration itself, because what will tend to happen is the Premier League will usually, uh, under its regulations, ask for a meeting, will do some enhanced due diligence, or usually engage particular investors of companies to be able to assist. There'll also be quite detailed financial submissions, budgets, future financial information, etc., that will be required. And that can sometimes take a decent amount of time. Um, and, and what's been reported, at least, is um, 
everything is more or less supposedly been agreed from a transactional perspective, but usually what can be the case is the deal can be contingent and conditional upon getting EPL regulatory approval so that if it doesn't happen, and query we don't know, we're not in the, the know on that, um, that actually then the deal falls away. Um, uh, but at the same time, obviously, you know, the deal has come so far now that it would be... Um, uh, it would be an interesting one to see if the Premier League actually uh, rejected that at present. So that's at least what's going on from um, the owners and directors test and then the obligations on a particular buyer that the Premier League requires um, of that particular buyer. And and if I can then just turn the, the query around maybe onto, um, onto your side, Omar, as well, is that at least in the Newcastle context, um, you know, what do you think post-transaction, um, if it actually goes through from a squad perspective, from you know a general spending perspective, from what they the talent that they've got in the squad, where do you think it, it stacks up? Where is the possibility of relegation? All of those type of things maybe as a, as a general interesting performance indicator. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I think um, historically when we've chatted to investors before, a lot of whom have had interactions with, with Newcastle because they're always been on the, well, they've been on the market for a long time as it were um, there's always been a feeling that the club's been more up for sale when uh, it's on the brink of relegation so firstly we've got this season situation it'd be useful to know you know what what some of the implications of that and what some of the headline figures versus maybe some of the reality on the ground but also the longer term view on, on things how's how's covid going to impact broadcast revenues for clubs well, I think the, the, the straightforward narrative and um, the one that's been reported in the last um, month or so is that, at least for EPL amounts, that if the season doesn't finish, then uh, there will be some type of rebate to the tune of £800 million plus. And, and that will presumably be something that is set out in the broadcasting agreements um, as to if particular... Um, performance of services by the Premier League as an entity can't be fulfilled, then value needs to be reapportioned to some degree. Now, um, the obviously the position then at the time being, or rather the current position is, season is suspended, there is the appetite for an indefinite extension until the season can be finished, and then you see what happens then. And I know we can maybe have a maybe more broader talk on the framework points in a second. But you know, I think the, um, the point, at least from a value proposition, at least, and we've talked about this previously, is maybe as follows. If, if the, the general um, overview of how broadcasting rights are sold in the UK is that only maybe a certain proportion of each match day is sh of games is actually shown on, on television, and because it looks unlikely that there is going to be fans in stadia over a, a, a decently period of time now, a decent period of time, even up until the end of this year, then I think there is then um, a value um, opportunity for the Premier League clubs generally, because presumably there's no reason that they couldn't start a new tender or offer um, additional domestic games to the incumbent broadcasters, either as a value substitution effect or to actually put new um, auction a new auction out there to be able to provide extra value for the Premier League clubs and possibly by way of solidarity contributions. So you can definitely foresee a situation, at least I would have thought, that 
Um, if, for example, there are, I think it was just over 90 games to go until the end of the, the season collectively mm. in the Premier League, um, maybe only 30 or 35 were going to be shown on television. There's nothing, there's no reason why there was over 60. I'm just putting figures out there, I'm not sure of the exact numbers couldn't that then be actually televised on a daily basis, for example. And obviously there would be huge worth and value in those um, additional games. So as much as I think the easy narrative is doomsday scenario in case we don't, the Premier League doesn't finish, I think if we assume at some point, hopefully, that the Premier League may be able to finish, then it actually becomes an interesting opportunity cost to try and see whether those additional games could be monetized and exploited for the benefit of the Premier League and then the wider um, the wider leagues um, uh, going down the football pyramid, really. Yeah, and then I guess looking forward as well, um, the, the, the Premier, we're obviously just at the start of a Premier League right cycle. Um, it'll be going to tender, I suspect, back end of the year. Normally it's about halfway through, isn't it, uh, where the deals start coming in. Um, it was interesting, I was looking at the figures for the, for the last, uh, for the... Premier League rights between 2010 and 2013, which was sold just as the the Great Recession was, uh, I guess, uh, kicking off. And actually, that was the only time where Premier League rights really flatlined. Uh, they didn't go down, interestingly. They, they kind of flatlined. And I suppose broadcasters at the time didn't really know the, the impact that the recession would have. But then it skyrocketed again from Double 2013, yeah. um, which I'm not sure, again, a lot of people were predicting. And there, there's, there's so many dynamics here. Um, going on with broadcast rights value. I think I think the the feeling is that there's been a bit of a maxing out. We discussed this last time in the videos of the, of the Premier League rights, uh, but the overseas rights will grow. The, the, the big unknown, I guess, is everyone's got an appetite for it at the moment. Everyone's got an appetite for sport. And if if coronavirus is going to be affecting us beyond the, the current year into 2021, who knows You know how long that, that this will last. And the appetite for live sport, or certainly home entertainment, uh, is is going to grow, and I think um, the question then becomes: Well, to what extent does a recession impact incomes and people's affordability for subscriptions? Maybe stuff goes on free to air. How much will advertisers be willing to pay? So, like, it's a long-winded way of saying there's there's a lot of uncertainty. I think there a few investors that we've spoken to kind of do feel that um, you know this appetite for if anything this kind of break is showing an appetite for sport. You know, I'm. I'm sitting at home watching reruns of, of Cricket World Cup final and, and Headingley last year. There's been plenty of football World Cup rewinds. Like everyone, everyone wants to watch it. Um, so I think that's part of the bet that owners have at the moment. Are you not watching Istanbul on repeat? <laughs> no, no, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. And, um, you know, I think I, I give the extreme example, which was... If you, I'm not sure if you remember, I think it was maybe even a month ago or so, someone did um, a brilliant uh, video of a marble race and commentary on Twitter. And it got something like ridiculous, like 12 million views in a couple of days or something silly, which sort of, at a, at a very basic level, but <laughs> the more I thought about it, the more I realized actually there was something intrinsic about the need for um, live competitive sport within our psyche more generally because we are so used to it. Mm. Um, and it's so ingrained within so many of the structures, the daily routines and structures of our lives um, as a whole, which then sort of, I guess, leads on to the, the next question which I had, which is, you know, dependent then on who effectively can uh, bring, their, uh, bring their competition back online as quickly as possible, does that give 
um, particular advantages, first mover advantages? Does it actually mean that those leagues, we're talking about Germany, for example, and certain Scandinavian leagues, does that give them um, uh, any benefit of first mover principle, any extra value that they can provide to the wider markets? Is there any other thoughts you had there at all? Yeah, it'll be like coming from my economics background, this, this is kind of what we describe as a, uh, when people look back and look at the data of, all, of how everything changed, uh, like a natural experiment of, of what's happened. And I think the Bundesliga one from, from a kind of sports rights perspective will be one of those where clearly, you know, the first live football um, that we see back on our televisions, I think a lot of people are going to see. I think someone was joking that, you know, uh, Paderborn versus Dusseldorf is suddenly going to be kind of the hottest, hottest property in town. Um, so, but but I, but I'm genuinely curious. I, I, you know, it, are football fans who've never really taken an interest in the Bundesliga really going to start taking a, a proper interest in it now, or is it is it actually the connection with the clubs that you have and the um, you know that that emotional support that you have for Newcastle City or whoever? Um, that means more, and this, this will, I think this will be a really good test of it, and it will be a really good opportunity for uh, for owners, for broadcasters, for leagues to really understand their fans. Because historically, if you're valuing media rights, what you'll do is um, maybe you'll do surveys, you'll try and understand the fans, you'll try and understand the kind of passion that fans associate within any given game, and therefore their willingness to watch games, and that will all go into the, the wash in terms of how much sponsors will be willing to pay and how much broadcast will pay and so on. This will give a really good test to that. Like, is football in of itself the thing that attracts fans or is it actually the narratives and the storylines that you're already associated with? You know, a big chunk of Premier League fans don't have subscriptions to BT Sport, which currently show, show the Bundesliga, um, and therefore wouldn't have, you know, they might have seen the league table and seen that it's quite a competitive title race, but not really kind of engaged with it on a week-to-week -week basis. So uh, I don't know, to be honest. And I actually, I, I don't even know how I'll respond. You know, I'm not somebody who watches Bundesliga week in, week out. So um, I, I think it will be fascinating as, a, as an experiment. And I think uh, if I was a, a broadcaster like Sky, uh, um, I'd be really interested to watch those viewing figures uh, and see, you know, to what extent is... Is a scarcity of sport driving the value, or is it actually we just love the the soap opera of the individual narratives that we watch? But I wonder also. I mean, I was giving this a bit of thought as well, and just going off tangent a tiny bit. But um, you know, I think in a way, when everyone's at home at the moment, the the consumption habits of people, maybe when they're sitting down in the evenings, has been you know, Netflix, Amazon, Disney Plus, et cetera. And that's almost the attention span, which is on-demand premium content, but um, isn't that uh, live, unexpected, not sure what's going to happen at a particular time moment. And in a way, those documentaries that you talked about and everything else, that's the in-between, which, which is reliving the memory that you already had about what the unexpected actually was. Um, and so I'm fascinated again on that point, which is whether actually live sport, whatever it is, becomes very front and centre because it is such a differentiator from what is currently available or whether actually what's currently available um, equalises because, again, it might well be exactly as you said, that some people just in the end aren't that fussed about Bundesliga and on that first about the Scandinavian league, or will it be the opposite, that actually it is so novel and new and scarce that you'll create a whole new audience of, um, uh, of viewers at different times?
Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think, uh, yeah, it, it, as I say, if I was a broadcaster right now, I'd be wanting to collect all kinds of data on, on viewing habits because you're never going to get an opportunity like this to understand what really drives um, viewer, viewer behavior. Um, the other thing, I mean, just going back to, going back to the Premier League, um, on the season ending, uh, there's so many kind of rumours uh, abound. I think one of the um, one of the interesting cases at the moment, I think one of the cases that really illustrates the challenge that, that the Premier League has is the case of Man United and Chelsea. So I just, if anyone's checked the league table as it ended, um, Chelsea are three points ahead of Man United, Chelsea are fourth, Man United are fifth. So, you know, in theory, uh, Chelsea in the Champions League places, United not, notwithstanding everything that's that's going on with City. Um, now, three points would be a reasonable gap. If you go on points per game or whatever, and you say, let's, let's end the season now, you would um, put Chelsea in the Champions League next season. But the, the big issue associated with it is that Man United have played Liverpool and City twice. You know, the two teams in the league that have been kind of racking up the points. And Chelsea have played neither. Uh, and actually, if you look at our projection models, which look at the rest of the games remaining and the quality of the teams involved, we actually project Man United by a slither just to pip Chelsea to the top four if the season were to restart now. You know, again, it's highly assumptive based. You know, a huge amount of things would have changed in the, in the kind of two, three months that, that we'd have off. But, but United could very fairly go, well, actually, if you look at the games remaining, we had just as good a chance as Chelsea finishing in the top four. And that, that's one of the big challenges. Um, you know, there's been some discussion of neutral venues and, uh, or behind closed doors. Uh, we wrote a blog about this yesterday. A team like Norwich would be massively disadvantaged um, if we were to play at neutral venues, for example, because they've got a number of home games against teams towards the bottom end of the league. Uh, and those are the games where you really need your home advantage. They're, they're literal six-pointers. They cause huge swings. And you need to be able to, to maximise your home advantage in those games. So unenviable position for, for leagues at the moment. I know UEFA have given some, some guidance on it, but it's all, the guidance is almost a little bit like do it as fairly as you can, basically. Well, and, and also the other bit on that is, yeah, they've, they've said it needs to be open, proportionate, transparent as the selection mechanism for, for games for next season. I also wonder whether, as a result, there might almost be, I mean, I don't, know, I don't even know how it would even work, some type of playoff system to be able to actually, in the end, for Champions League places, um, where it wasn't mathematically possible to be able to then put some type of playoff mechanism in place to be able to qualify. But again, it's just, you know, why would Man City then go into a playoff mechanism when they are effectively second by a bit of distance or, or Leicester, for example, having their best season or otherwise. So, yeah, it's, you know, if, if seasons end now, it seems at least one thing seems to be the case is that it doesn't appear that UEFA wants the qualifying criteria to be what whoever finished the season in which position last season. It seems to be it's going to be based on sporting merit for this season, but it still doesn't necessarily make it a straightforward proposition as whoever is in those qualifying positions is going to then automatically finalise or get into those positions um, if, for example, things don't necessarily work out before the end of the season. Mm. And speaking of broadcast money, it's interesting that guidance from UEFA that's this season. A lot of leagues distribute money based on kind of a, a two, three, five, some cases even 10-year uh, basis of performance. Premier League's actually, I think, one of the few that is only this, this current season. The league's going to have a real difficult time, I think, determining how, how to distribute that broadcast money because some of it's contingent on league positions, some of it's contingent on how many times you appear on TV. I think broadcasters, for example, are holding back on Liverpool games 
because they wanted to make sure that they capture the run in and, and them lifting the league and so on. So, yeah, not not an easy uh, decision decision to make. Um, just, just finally on on this kind of media rights um, landscape, um, what do you think clubs are thinking at the moment in terms of their, I guess, vulnerability to shocks like this? Um, now, you, you know, in most of your planning, you. I guess you're not thinking about events like uh, you know global pandemic that might affect your business model, but clubs probably are going to start thinking about that. What, what are some of the things that they can maybe do in terms of diversifying their revenue uh, and making themselves less at risk to to what's going on at the moment? Well, I, I, there's there's a few bits going on, I guess, which is um, it's the type of things that you know the clubs are going to have competitive advantage over from from each other. So those individual commercial deals, if it's apparel, if it's front of shirt, if it's commercial and corporate, um, and it's effectively trying to rein in their cost base. So you can see what's been reported over the last few weeks across lots of even Premier League clubs where clubs are asking for wage reductions over a particular period of time on deferrals over certain periods, depending on what the amounts might be or otherwise making those deferrals or reductions contingent on certain success as well over um, the next couple of months. Um, so in a way, um, you know, I think ultimately what, sh- what has tended to give EPL clubs confidence in their own approach to things, and obviously some clubs are more dependent on broadcasting monies than others, is that minimum guarantee of those collective distributions, which tend to be around 100 million, plus all of them, the individual deals or otherwise that you can otherwise do. So, yeah, it, it's obviously vital to have diversified revenue streams, but it's, it's easier said than done. And I think I'm not necessarily convinced that um, it's not like any club isn't thinking, well, we need to make sure that we bring in extra match day revenues or we can maximize particular elements. I actually think, and it's maybe something we're going to talk about on agents and recruitment side, is that some clubs are sometimes more dependent on being recipients of large transfer inflows um, in the basis for maybe breaking even or for um, at least not making significant losses. And in a way, it is how do we enable us to be able to compete effectively in the Premier League and maybe having to spend a large proportion of our revenues um, on wages whilst at the same time understanding the market that if a very good offer comes in for one of our top players, that we can really then reinvest in the squad accordingly, then maybe that's something good. And I think then the the point which you'll obviously be much more qualified than me on, which is what then happens to a market constrained by COVID um, uh, and constrained by the possible at least moral and PR issues around suddenly spending huge amounts of money um, in uh, a time where um, people are losing their jobs and unfortunately, God forbid, losing their lives. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, the, the, the clubs are going to have to weigh up a number of things, I guess, on uh, going forward. And, and I guess be really clear on the strategy on, on the different aspects of running the clubs, whether it's their player trading, whether it's their match day commercial, um, you know, how they, just the overall sporting success that they have. So, yeah, t- t- as tough a time as any to, to be a football club but uh, and to own a football club, uh, which we've spoken about. But uh, yeah, it'll be, be interesting to see how things develop. So, um, Omar, we've talked about um, uh, ownership and um, particular takeovers and whether it's been a good or bad time to um, 
buy or sell a club. And then we've talked about obviously one of the main areas for value of ownership groups, which can be obviously media rights and, and how that's playing out at the moment now. If in turn then like we, we talk we, we turn in a way to um, recruitment players and agents as 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 one obviously big area as well. Um, I'd just be fascinated to hear from from your experience and what you're seeing and what you're thinking about how first I guess how the market is looking at the moment and and I guess a wider point that we've discussed is you know will clubs be thinking long and hard about spending large sums from a, a moral perspective um, bearing in mind the wider economic climate and the wider sensitivities around around COVID right now. Yeah, it still amazes me that um, newspapers are publishing uh, pieces around players going for 50 million euros or, or whatever. And I'm sure a lot of that is kind of paper talk as opposed to clubs discussing that because certainly all the conversations that we've had with clubs is, is very much a, a modest view on on how player trading is going to go over over the summer. Um, historically, I mean, a lot of people have spoken about the explosion of, of transfer fees. And I know I've spoken about this before, but transfer spending has historically been, particularly in the FFP area, in proportion with club revenues. So in the Premier League, for example, each, each year, transfer spending, net transfer spending accounts for about 15, or is equivalent to about 15% of, um, of the club's revenues. So taking that as, um, as a kind of baseline, there's obviously, you can look at the reduction in revenues from match day, from commercial, potentially broadcast as well, uh, and make some projections around you know, a best case, a best estimate of, of how much transfer fees will fall. Uh, but there's other, there's other factors going on here, how much cash clubs have. Um, a transfer fee isn't just a transfer fee. When, uh, when PSG paid 200 odd million for, uh, for Neymar, they aren't literally going to their bank account and extracting 200 million and sending it to, um, to Barcelona. That's paid out in installments. There'll be contingencies and, and all kinds of things associated with that. So um, the, the other thing here is that a club may be offering, uh, let's say, six million for a player um, will maybe be in a better position paying cash up front than a club offering ten million for a player, but let's say two and a half million over uh, over four, spread over uh, four years. So it's all these dynamics, and that's going to be really difficult um, for clubs to navigate. The number one thing that everyone knows is that uh, prices are are going to go down. Um, the thing is, no one knows what yet, how how much yet, and I think um, you know we've spoken a little bit around what that calibration event will be. Um, uh, we spoke about goal like a few summers ago with goalkeepers. The recalibration event was the Allison deal, and then Kepler followed it up. You could argue with centre backs that happened with Van Dijk. Um, and at some point, there's probably going to be a player that goes uh, for a lot less than what they're expecting to go for, just because it made sense to the seller who needed to get rid of the player because he was on high wages, and it made sense to the buyer because they're probably getting a, a good deal, um, or at least how they perceived it. So, yeah, really tough. Um, I think the other thing, so that, that's on the kind of value piece. I think the other thing that clubs are, are thinking about is, is strategy. Um, how do you navigate this market? And I, I mentioned on on the ownership discussion we had uh, around not wanting to get involved in bidding wars. Um, a lot of Premier League scouting in particular happens within the big five leagues. Um, so about a third of transfers are into Premier League and then uh, roughly kind of a half to two thirds of transfers are into big five leagues, uh, into the Premier League. Uh, now, if everyone's scouting in the same regions, uh, everyone's looking at the same Scout videos and the, uh, and the same data, then you are going to get involved in those bidding wars. 
and there's no getting around it because everyone's going to identify who the, who the best players are. So clubs are going to have to think smart around the way that they uh, identify players uh, in this period and, and maybe try and pick out the, the clubs and teams that are most likely to want to sell uh, versus those that are maybe in a bit more comfortable position. And, you know, we were, we were discussing it when we were just preparing this a bit as well was, yeah, I agree. It's almost like, you know, in, in negotiation, you have the, the, the sort of concept of anchoring, which is, you know, you, you, you put down um, a sort of minimum amount, even if it's in your own head or what you think is the anchor in the other, on the other side. And then you use that as the, the baseline, basically, in order then to, to try and find extra value or to try and increase any particular offers. And it almost feels like we're going to get to that sort of, again, as you mentioned, that sort of anti-anchoring position where it's rather a new anchor where when, when one potential deal happens at some point, whatever that amount is, and that recalibration happens is that then it almost provides the justification for the rest of the market to sort of reanalyze uh, where everyone else stands. It was almost like when, you know, the summer of Mbappe and Neymar and then Coutinho and then Dembele, for example, happened. And that almost set like, the standard really then for the next three or four windows, almost in a way that... Uh, you know that def the deflationary effect of a few transfers may actually then, as a result, recalibrate that market. Sounds like what what may at least happen. Yeah, I remember chatting to a Premier League CEO. It's a slightly dated example now, but uh, he had a quite a valuable centre back uh, that a lot of clubs rated. And the moment John Stones went from Everton to Man City for you know the reported fee of forty fifty million, whatever it was. Um, it was like right, you know, that's that's the new asking price. That's how it works. Like we've got we've got player valuation models that we like to think provide a, a objective valuation on players, uh, and it can certainly help clubs get a sense of what uh, where they might be able to find value in the market. Um, but at the end of the day, the market's the market. Um, you know, it's the same when you're buying houses. No, no one looks at a at a house and goes. Oh, I can see the asking price there, and that's exactly what it's worth to me. You know, that's exactly how much you'll increase my whatever. Clubs don't think of that way because it's very challenging to think that way. It's very difficult in terms of modeling, trying to pick apart what, um, you know, if I buy this player for 20 million, how does that actually impact my chance of Champions League, chance of winning the league, impact on revenue? It's, it's a really complicated task. But I do think clubs are going to have to think about that a bit more now. It, it, it's going to be a lot more about worth rather than market value. Uh, because each decision is going to have to be um, kind of taken with a lot of consideration about the long-term consequences. You can't sign a bad player now and have them on a five-year deal paying them 100k a week. That's just, just not, uh, not doable. So it's kind of a reversion to, um, uh, to earlier times. Uh, what's, what's the situation, I guess, out-of-contract players are going to be really attractive um, in, in, this, uh, in this new market? How... How might they position themselves? How might deals get done on free players? And obviously there's this whole confusion as well around if the season does start and go into July, that famous 30th June cutoff day, how does, how does that come into it? Yeah, there's, there's, loads of, there's loads of difficulties approaching really. And I know that's one of the, the pinch points that a lot of clubs and agents and players are thinking about, which is, um, you know, for a lot of high-profile players um, across European leagues who are out of contract, or even plenty that aren't as high-profile that are out of contract, um, it leaves a bit of an uncertain situation because 
if that contract expires, and at least in, in under English and Wales law, you can't compel someone to keep being employed by you. It can't be a unilateral decision that an employer takes or an employee takes. It needs to be um, a sort of joint extension. What FIFA at least said is that the, you know, the team and the player can come together and have a short-term extension to be able to play until the end of the season. Um, the query is then whether those players will want to do that for lots of different reasons, for injury reasons, for insurance reasons, for you know tons of different things. Um, and it may also be that they've already signed a pre-contract but don't want to tell anyone about where they're going. And that club may not want them to sign an extension until the end of the year because obviously it heightens that um, particular risk. But the issue then for players is, is that, exactly as you said, if, for example, then the season isn't going to finish until, let's just conservatively say, July or August time, um, and then the transfer window only opens around the time of the end of the season and before the next season starts, who knows when that might happen, um, then although players can enter into new employment contracts with new clubs when their contracts expires, um, the, the nuance is obviously that player can't be registered with a club, with that new club, until the new season begins, or rather at least until the registration window opens. Which means that from an incentives perspective, out of thought, and you can maybe, we can maybe think about this for another piece as well, to be fair, is what is the incentive of many clubs who will still have maybe a quarter of their season left to, um, uh, to try and be um, putting on their... Um, a financial accounts and balance sheets or otherwise new expenses or rather profit loss new expenses from um, new player wages even if it is on a free transfer if they can't play those players for two or three months more time in more time really so my my query there is where the incentives lie yes free transfers are going to be very attractive in a time of financial prudence but the shorter term point may well be that some clubs will have to take a, a possibly a three to four month hit on a player that they may be able to train, but they won't be able to actually play at all. And that becomes then some of the, I think, tricky elements. Mm. The other type of free transfer, as it were, um, is young players. And I, I actually think uh, clubs as academies here might uh, really come to the fore. The clubs that have invested in their academies over the last, uh, you know, three, five years will now, you know, the, the ownership groups and the, the boards will be saying to the head coaches, you haven't got a budget. You can't spend on new players. Look, we've got these great players that we've been investing millions in. Like, but that's a transfer fee associated with your academy, right? You, your, the investment that you make in it. Um, they have the potential and that some of them are going to one day be as good as these superstar players. So, um, you know, why don't, why don't you put some time and money into them? So I, certainly from a kind of club sustainability point of view, you'd hope that the ones that uh, have invested in their academies will, um, will benefit from it. And I think... Um, just on one other point, just sorry as well, which maybe leads into maybe some of the agent discussion we can have as well, which is, you know, it, it leads to some quite difficult integrity of competition issues as well. I know we talked about that in our previous chats as well, but ultimately, you know, it, unless things have changed over the last week or so, my understanding is for Watford, for example, Watford's two goalkeepers, Gomez and Foster, are out of contract come 30th of June. Um, so if they don't sign new deals... Um, and then aren't playing for Watford anymore when the season resumes or part of the season resumes then then are not uh, contracted to play anymore. You know, that potentially impacts on Watford's chances of survival, presumably, because they're not going to be able to bring a new goalkeeper in because the registration period obviously um, hasn't opened as yet. So, um, you know, again, it, it, in some instances, I presume, potentially puts players 
in quite a strong negotiation position and their agents in a strong negotiation position if a high-profile player like William Lalana, um, Vertonghen, for example, I think at Spurs, um, you know, Foster and Gomez, for example, in real key positions, um, it possibly changes the negotiation tactic and dynamic to a degree. Um, and to see how that plays out, I think, is, is not a straightforward one either. Yeah. yeah you, um, I mean, race agents, they're going to they're gonna have an important part to play in, in the marketplace, potentially, in terms of uh, being able to communicate all these different uh, messages to, to clubs and players and so on. You, you've been, obviously, doing a lot of work with um, speaking to intermediaries. What, what's their feeling at the moment in terms of how the trust market is going to develop and, and their role in it? Well, it's difficult, really. Um, I think, you know, I don't see the day-to-day work that agent, my agents and clients do, really, because a lot of the time I'll be asking, you know, what deals are happening? Is that likely to happen? Who have you been speaking to here? And then sometimes the things that don't look likely end up happening and then, um, you know, then it becomes um, a race against time sometimes to be able to help in particular instances. But there were some really good pieces on um, The Athletic over the last few weeks as well. And I know you guys contribute to that as well, um, that publication. Um, a couple of pieces by Adam Crafton and David Ornstein and others, specifically just talking to their connections throughout the agent and ownership and player world. Um, just about how everything has more or less gone into a bit of standstill or at least a holding period because I think at the moment, and it goes back to our point that we were talking about earlier about timing and suspensions of the league and indefinitely continuing, etc. I almost think until there is some certainty about what is possibly going to happen, when things are going to start again, if they start again, on what terms they're going to start again, how long the season goes on, you know, all of the all of the usual traditional frameworks of how football has traditionally run has, has gone, has got literally gone out the window. So you almost in a way can't base anything that is happening at present on what is normal, usual or acceptable is the truth. I don't mean acceptable like something is unacceptable, but I mean just common behavior, which means that whilst there is this um, stasis, um, you know, if I was the chief commercial officer or chief financial officer of um, a club um, and, my, and, the, and the sporting director or chairman or chief executive, we're trying to budget particular um, forecasts, budget and forecasts for the couple of years time ahead. You know, there's, there's in a way very little point in having substantive conversations with agents or otherwise, because the truth is on the whole, no one's going to know what um, their requirements might be and those requirements might change inside two or three weeks depending on what potentially happens in announcements that the EFL make, the EPL make, other leagues make, etc. So um, my view is, is that agents obviously have strong relationships with their own individuals at particular clubs and vice versa. So that isn't going to change overnight. I think what is going to change is probably um, the appetite to spend large amounts as we've talked about but um, actually then uh, what happens if particular situations occur. Um, and, you know, that is almost the job of the agent, which is, I think, um, to find solutions to um, put, put potential options to certain clubs at certain times, um, and then to see where the lay of the land is and how that changes over a particular period. Because, you know, we don't even know when the transfer window is going to open, never mind um, uh, the season finish. Um, which means that, you know, all of these things, it's like literally five or six balls in the air and it seems like 
the most important and significant balls are still in the air, i.e. they haven't come down to rest, and then you don't know how then to plan um, as a result. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the dynamics that might be is that yeah, clubs at the moment, again, are, are cash poor. Um, they, they might be struggling to pay instalments to other clubs and agents. Uh, you might get this scenario where certain agents are attached to certain clubs and, and are able to uh, support certain teams because they've got a good relationship with them. There's going to be a lot of um, behind-the-scenes work here in terms of where the relationships exist and where, where the money might be owed ultimately. Well, yeah, exactly. And we, we were talking about it before, which is, you know, the times that agents are historically paid tends to be after in installments after a window has concluded. So if that's in February for a January transfer or around the summer period, if it's July, August, September time for um, a summer um, move. And if the vast majority of those agents are paid in installments annually or twice a year, for example, then there are going to be quite a lot of pinch points happening come this summer period if things aren't resolved to a degree. Because, you know, I think um, it's probably fair to say that clubs are going to try and have to going to have to try and balance their their cash flows. And I'm sure one of the things which will, you know, have to be balanced is the idea of um, um, fully paying agents. Um, but the flip side of that is if those clubs still need those agents um, to be able to assist with deals and to be able to maybe transfer players out because of cash flow issues, then, you know, it's, um, you know, it's less likely those agents are going to be best enamoured with those clubs if on one side they're helping them, on the other side they're not paying. Yeah. So as, as with everything in this window, there's, there's uncertainty and there's, uh, I guess, for a lot of clubs where they see uncertainty, they'll see opportunity. Um, you know, one of the things that we were discussing uh, internally here is, uh, is swap deals, which is is a very kind of common thing in US sports and I'm sure actually in US sports at the moment it's probably been uh, probably raised as, as quite a big way of alleviating cash and moving wages around and that type of thing uh, don't don't often happen in football um, partly because I guess the complications of, of players having more of a say and that kind of thing but uh, it's another added factor that might come into the consideration as to oh well if if Club X is struggling and wants to get rid of players. Is there someone we can maybe give them instead and, and uh, maybe make the deal more attractive for them? Out, out of interest, the, the swap deal in football, it doesn't really exist, does it? It's kind of two separate transactions. Well, no, it's, it's actually a really good point because what, um, what can be a concern in some instances because of the, the structural way that things happen, especially because, again, we talked about one of these bits in our, in our last piece, when we actually sat around two meters apart from each other, we were actually probably around <laughs> social distancing. It all seems so dated, won't it? <laughs> oh my lord! Um, was um, you know the idea of sell-on clauses? So, so the question effectively would be: is if swaps actually happen for the same relative value, if that's what it was, mm-hmm. um, how would a sell-on clause impact on that? If there is a like-for-like um, 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 swap at a particular value, would then an independent valuation have to take place as to what the value of that player swap actually was? And then for that club to effectively still pay what the sell-on would have been had it been um, a standalone deal. So, you know, it's all of those type of things which aren't straightforward to, to, to consider. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if they need an independent valuation, they, they know, where to, know where to come to. Oh, seamless, seamless. <laughs> All right. Well, cheers. Cheers, Daniel. Uh, interesting, interesting chat as ever. Uh, and yeah, I guess uh, we'll catch up in, in a few weeks to see how all, how all this is unfolding. For sure. Thanks for your time, Paul. Thanks for listening. 
You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law. Read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundeal Football Podcast, like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book, Dundeal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.